Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Starting a new business is challenging, especially if you're female or minority-owned. We talk to a female entrepreneur from Wyndham and find out how a free legal program has helped put her on the road to success. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. If you've ever thought about starting your own business, you'll know there are many things you have to consider, from maybe brick-and-mortar premises to permits and licenses, and if you're creating or manufacturing something, then protecting it with a patent to make sure no one steals your idea. All of this can add up to tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars, and is the reason many new businesses either fail to take off or never get started in the first place. So imagine a law firm that's taken it upon itself to provide a million dollars of free legal services to minority-owned businesses across the nation each year for the next 10 years. It's called the Wigan Opportunity Initiative and it's run by the nationwide law firm of Wigan and Dana. And they joined me recently together with one of their Connecticut clients they are providing free legal services to to discuss the initiative they started back in 2020. Joining us on the podcast is Anthony Sabatelli, who's a patent counsel for Wigan and Dana, Len Gray, who's also a partner for the corporate department from Wigan and Dana Lawyers, and also Lisbeth Marquez, who's founder of Locks of Liz. To the three of you, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hello, Brian. Thank Thank you for having me. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having us. Nice to meet you, Brian. Thank you. So, Len, I want to ask you the first question. Wigan and Dana, a huge lawyer firm. Tell us a little bit about this thing called the Wigan Opportunity Initiative, because there's obviously history in it. Goes back to the summer of 2020 and came out of the shadow of the extremely unfortunate George Floyd murder. Tell us why this was important to you as an organization. Sure. So at a high level, you know, the Wigan Opportunity Initiative is our firm's commitment that over the next 10 years, we'll provide $10 million in free legal services to minority-owned businesses. And as you said, it did come out of the BLM summer of 2020. But really, we realized at the time that that was, and not to minimize it at all, but that was certainly one one place where we were seeing, or one community that was underserved, frankly, by the the small business community. And what we realized is that, you know, that 2020 was about BLM, but over the next decade, it was likely to affect many other communities too. And so what we wanted to do is is not take a narrow focus, but really to try to focus on as many of the underserved communities as we possibly could. And so the, the program itself is directed at really all minority-owned businesses. And we take a very broad view of what a minority-owned business is with the hope that this is a very inclusive program that we can deliver as many services as we can to as many different organizations as possible. 
Let me put this question to you, Lennon. I'm not trying to sort of like um, sabotage you here, but I mean, in part of the information I was sent, that uh, part of this is to do with the fact, or rather, I should say that um, in the two years um, subsequent to the the George Floyd murder, so like corporate accountability uh, seemed to quiet. And why do you think that that happened? Do you think it was a case of you know, like I'm afraid so many large organisations, you know, they do what they think is right at the time and then, you know, it, it slowly drifts away. Is that what that is? So, yes, I think that's part of it. You know, honestly, in 2020, it's, it's you know, here we are two and a half years later and it's so hard to remember. But I think there were a lot of folks that were worried what the economy was going to do and they thought that they would have a lot of time on their hands. And so there were there, a number of organizations made these pledges because, to be honest, I think they thought they'd be feeling filling extra capacity. You know, candidly, I think we did too. That said, you know, we've had you know the two busiest years in our firm's history the last two years, and we, in spite of that, we've kept up with our pledge, and we're still very much on path to meet our commitment. Quite frankly, probably before the end of the ten years. Also, before we started the WOI initiative in 2020, um, participating in various pro bono efforts has always been a core value of uh, Wigan and Dana. So this is, in a sense, nothing new to us, but a further extension and a bigger uh, commitment. And we realized around 2020 that there's this uh, need to support long-term improvement in opportunity and equality in our communities uh, through helping businesses. So, Anthony, just explain a little bit more to me, if you would, uh, and Len may want to come in on this as well. It's great. And we do know that many so like law firms, you know, do provide pro bono. And, and it is important because doing business at any stage is challenging and does require a lot of, of, of legal assistance. You deal with businesses all over the U.S. So that must be challenging in itself because, you know, there's different states, different laws. We realize that there's also a similar type of needs that these small businesses have, uh, for example, uh, contract needs, negotiating leases, employee issues, and myself, I'm an intellectual property attorney focusing primarily on patents. And for companies that have technology focus, it's important to help them establish and shore up their IP uh, portfolios. So there's a lot of commonality across the, the needs that these businesses would have and particularly for these businesses that are owned by historically underrepresented groups. So, so there is that commonality. I want to bring in uh, Elizabeth Marquez uh, now, who is the founder of Locks of Liz, based in Willimantic in Connecticut. Elizabeth, first of all, obviously, congratulations, you know, in a challenging time for business just generally. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about your background, because having read the bio, I'm not sure how you ever found time to do all of this. I mean, you're an incredibly busy individual, a medical professional as well. But tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you, Brian. So I created Locks of Liz in 2019, just before the pandemic. Um, I launched in November of 2019. And I just launched it as a way, um, so I'm an Afro-Latina, I have big, coily, curly hair, and I had just recently kind of embraced that and was beginning to give a lot of advice on how to handle curly hair care and stuff. And I was making my own products at the time, just for me and my daughter, but I decided to turn it into a business in 2019. So with that, I, I just 
did it after work, which I still still do, <laughs> but just found the time. It was something I was very passionate about. I'm also just a very motivated person and always on the go. So I just, uh, and I, I don't sleep much. <laughs> so that's how I find the time, I guess. But I, I did create this uh, kind of out of a need for me being in the Latino community. Curly hair is kind of seen as bad hair. And I wanted to change that and and just have more people embrace their their curls. So that's kind of where that came out of. But also my background in, in the medical field at the time when I was creating my formulas, I was working in oncology and just seeing how these harsh chemicals like chemotherapy were ravaging people's hair and their self-esteem. And that was another kind of pull for why I wanted to make my product a clean and green plant-based product for people. Which is incredible. I just wanted to ask you, you know, so then how did you get involved, obviously, with Wigan and Dana and obviously their opportunity initiative? Because creating, as we said, you know, business is challenging at any time, but you're creating a product. You obviously wanted to protect it. There's multiple things involved in that. So just give us a little bit of your journey as to how you got in contact and how that worked out for you. Uh, yes, for sure. So I live in the quiet corner of Connecticut, um, and there is not much over here that you hear about uh, from these big cities. Uh, so I actually had reached out to another program called the Women's Business Development Center. I had been working with them from the start of creating my business, and they knew about the uh, Wings and Dana program, the WOI program, and reached out to me about it. And I seem to have been a good candidate for it as a minority owned business. And I just jumped on it. I was like, yes, please sign me up because I had those thoughts of trademarking, patenting. And um, I also had some contracts in, in the works uh, where I was thinking of getting uh, some retail space at the time. So uh, I was accepted and definitely helped. Um, I worked with Anthony. Thank you, Anthony, for your patience <laughs> with my schedule. But he was great in helping me submitting my patents and writing up my patents. He did great in learning about curly hair care in general and the ins and outs of that, um, all the terms and everything and, and and all the ingredients. And that was just amazing. So we're currently patent pending on that, but I also got my trademark done through the WI program. And there were two contracts that, that they helped me navigate and see that it wasn't really the perfect fit for me. So I, I'm really grateful for that as well. Anthony, just help us understand that situation a little bit more, because as Elizabeth just explained, you know, there was a lot of work there. You got involved, as we said, you know, business, lots of things involved in it. But certainly when you're creating a product and you want to protect it, that's super important. Certainly. And when Elizabeth came to us, particularly with some of her needs in the intellectual property area for patent and trademark protection, it was uh, just a really a great opportunity because I was able to see in talking with uh, Elizabeth that she was developing uh, these novel products and there was real technology behind it. And it was incredibly important to uh, provide her with appropriate protection uh, to help her shore up her proprietary position there. And uh, many times uh, obtaining, filing and obtaining patents is a very long and expensive process and beyond the means of many small businesses. So to be able to do this for an initiative such as Elizabeth's was a real treat for us because we could really help her and make a difference and give her a shot in the arm with her business to help establish her uh, patent portfolio there. And this is something that will make her also more uh, marketable and interesting to uh, others down the road if she's ever looking for investors or to partner or to license her technology. So this is something 
very important and valuable that we were able to provide for her. And also she was just a joy to deal with. And as she mentioned, I learned a lot of terminology about different kinds of hair and hair care that I uh, never knew. So it was a great learning experience for me. But I, I did want to mention, I could not have, especially at the place where my business is, even now I'm growing, but I'm not at the place financially where I could have afforded the patent or the trademark um, lawyer fees. Uh, that was something that was way beyond my reach um, at this time. So it was, I'm ex- Extremely grateful that this program was available for me in my business. And that's also a sort of catch-22 uh, for these businesses when they have underlying technology. There's the need to uh, protect it and also uh, how they're viewed by others. Again, I mentioned uh, partners, investors, et cetera, where there's an expectation that one will uh, obtain intellectual property protection, patent protection, but many times, again, it's beyond the reach. And so they're in a kind of a bind or this catch-22 situation where they need this protection to proceed, but uh, can't get it on their own until they get funding or have the resources. So we were happy in this instance, again, to help Elizabeth get over this hurdle. Len, I want to turn to you. Obviously, this all involves money. I know this is pro bono work, but just to give a sense, and, and so like Anthony sort of touched upon it just then, a lot of small businesses wouldn't be able to proceed at this basis because of the cost to make sure that these things are protected. Do you think that this is part of the problem as to why a lot of small businesses are, aren't able to establish themselves? And we're not talking about the lawyer's costs, we're just talking about the costs of doing business. And again, I mean, uh, specifically, I'm going to reference Connecticut here. Connecticut has over 100,000 so like women-owned businesses, which represents about a third of the small businesses overall in the state, but they rank 46th, which means Connecticut clearly could do better and maybe isn't doing enough to help promote and assist small businesses. Absolutely. Starting a business is expensive. And, you know, it, we see this whether it's a tech business or it's a traditional brick and mortar business, law is kind of a black box and it can be very intimidating to try to stay in compliance and quite honestly, very expensive. And it absolutely is a hurdle for businesses to, and again, this isn't just minority owned businesses. This is any business, right? That it's, this is something that, you know, it's a real challenge. You know, our firm has a practice group that's dedicated to emerging companies of which I'm one of the chairs. And, you know, this is something we deal with every day that, you know, you've got a business and even if it's a software business that, you know, a lot can be done by the individual at home on their computer, forming a business, making sure that you have all the right licenses, making sure that you've protected your IP. It's a very costly process. And so, you know, we, we have to be creative with how we work with these businesses in order to make sure that they're getting everything they need without you know, seeking themselves right off the bat by the, the cost they're undertaking to do it, which to be honest, is the WI program from our perspective has also been great because it really gives us the opportunity to work with these businesses that we love. And frankly, as a billing lawyer too, it's sometimes nice when you don't have to worry about cost and you can, and you don't have to worry about a budget and you can really dive in and, and get these companies what they need without having to be encumbered by worrying about how they're actually going to pay for it. I just want to clarify something with you as well. Obviously, the Wigan Opportunity Initiative isn't just confined to, you know, we're talking to a business here in Connecticut. It is an initiative which is across the state or, you know, wherever you're represented by way of offices. Just give us a sense, if you can, Len, is there, you know, perhaps one particular state which is easier to do business in, you know, that or, or seems to be more open to business? 
No, I wouldn't say so. In, in the tech space, the rule of thumb is that if you're going to start a company that you would start it in Delaware. The reason for that, though, is less because Delaware is you know, easier to operate a business in, but more because the Delaware law is very well developed. So that creates certainty, particularly with your investors. In terms of the states that we work with, I wouldn't say there's one that I find to be particularly easy to work in and, and versus any of the others. And to be honest, you know, for a lot of these businesses, moving state to start a new business really isn't an option. So what we have to do is figure out the best way to support them where they are. Because you know, again, it's, you know, if, if it were to say be easier to start a business in Maryland, but you live in Connecticut, you know, that's not necessarily going to do a lot of good. So we have to figure out a way to make, you know, make the business work for them in Connecticut. The other thing I want to ask you, Len, as well is, and as we said, this is a great thing that obviously your organization is doing on so many levels. I mean, obviously, from the financial to just the the ability to give that expert business advice to these new businesses. It was a bit of a gamble, really, by your organization doing this, because obviously we had COVID as well. So that was affecting your business, every other business. Did you think that small businesses were going to take off during that time? That's a really good question, actually. And I think, honestly, we weren't sure. There were, I think, two minds on it. One, you know, back in 2008, 2009, when the economy was in a bit of a downturn, we did see a spike in startup businesses that kind of sprung from the fact that folks were unfortunately losing their jobs and having the opportunity to, to then pursue other options. And so there was a thought that perhaps, you know, if the economy did slow down, there would be people out of work that would look to generate income through starting their own business. We knew COVID was obviously going to create opportunities and so that there would be small businesses that would develop just to respond to it. But then of course there's this other thought too that and this is obviously again two and a half years later, it's hard to remember, but it was such a traumatic moment in time that no one really knew what was going to happen and no one really knew what the market was going to look like. And so there was, you know, there was a concern that that we might go to a place where there wasn't funding available, you know, there wasn't there weren't systems in place that could help you start a business in that environment. Well, we should make it clear that this Wigan Opportunity Initiative by Wigan and Dana launched obviously in 2020 as a 10-year commitment. So that's good to hear that your business will continue to assist obviously small businesses across the United States right up until the year 2030. I just want to put a final question to Lisbeth. If, Lisbeth, this hadn't been made available to you, do you think you would be in business now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think just because of my personality, I just would have kept pushing along. But this has definitely been a help, especially now that I want to get into pitching um, investors and stuff. This is a great help. And I think it will definitely make me look good against any competitors I may have um, in that process. But I think it would have just been it would have just been a little harder to and more stressful to think about how will I get the funds to protect my formulas? How will I, you know, trademark? How will I just go along this process, all the legal processes that are involved with creating a business? So so yeah, I think I, I would still be in business, I believe. I just think it, it would have been a lot harder. Um, this has definitely taken a big stress off of off of that. And I just want to put this question to you as well, Elizabeth, is that 
you know, we mentioned earlier, Connecticut is 46th in the nation when it comes to women-owned businesses, which means, as we say, Connecticut could do better. Do you feel that you got as much assistance as you needed or, or has it been a bit of a, a challenge? Uh, yeah, it has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, this opportunity has been great, but it's only one of or maybe two opportunities that I've seen in Connecticut so far that do help um, women-owned business or minority-owned business in general. I am trying to do research and look up information, but it's just not something you really hear too much in Connecticut, I feel, as a business owner. And I have a lot of connections of small businesses that I know that don't know about these programs. Um, and I, I do try to help out. I mean, in my town, it's actually 47% Hispanic, according to the 2021 census. And we in this area don't hear much about starting businesses at all. So I think there could be a, a bigger push for programs like this, um, and just helping small businesses in general. But yeah, I think there, there could be more to be done. But there are things you just really have to do your research really Use Google to your advantage and reach out to programs like the one that I mentioned before, the Women's Development uh, Business Development Center, that help out and have these other connections uh, the way they connected me with the WOI program. They say that small businesses are the backbone of America, and we're pleased to see that uh, Locks of Liz is doing so well, obviously, with the assistance from Wigan and Dana lawyers. To Anthony Sabatelli, Len Gray from Wigan and Dana, thank you very much. And Elizabeth Marquez, continued success. And also, thank you for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you. Our pleasure. And if you're a minority-owned business in need of legal services and cannot afford them, Wigan and Dana are still seeking businesses to assist under their Opportunity Initiative. And you can contact John Dorigazi at the law firm directly via email at jdorigazi at wigan.com. That's J-D-O-R-O-G-H-A-Z-I at wigan, W-I-G-G-I-N dot com. My mother was always very active and independent and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. It's important for you to talk to someone about it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Fall will soon be here, and now's the time to start thinking about fall planting and maintenance. From your trees to your plants, now's the time to book ahead with Green Valley Tree, LLC. Let us set up a fall maintenance plan for you to make sure your yard is ready for when winter arrives. Contact us via our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com or call us on 860-234-4041. And don't forget to ask us about our 100% no money down financing too. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week, sponsored by... Healing Therapies Through Sharing is Eastern Connecticut's holistic wellness center for those recently diagnosed or living with a cancer diagnosis and their caregivers. We offer a range of services including adult and pediatric oncology massage, lymphatic drainage, craniosacral therapy, yoga for cancer, and much more. For details about our full range of services and our team of licensed professional therapists and providers, visit our website at healingtherapiesct.org or call us on 860-443-0800. We look forward to hearing from you. 
Connecticut Port Authority critic and local business owner Kevin Blacker has been nominated by the Connecticut Green Party to take on U.S. Congressman Joe Courtney in this year's elections. Blacker says despite being new to politics, his nomination is already making waves. This will have an impact on the race. And uh, I've heard from people on the Republican side and the Democrat side both saying, you know, that I shouldn't do it because it's going to hurt their candidates' chances. I know that I'm going to have to bear that judgment and resentment no matter what the outcome. Courtney is also being challenged for the second district by Republican state representative alleged Mike France. Blacker says he intends to fight to win, but does have one concern about the election process, and that's the involvement of Scott Bates, the current deputy secretary of the state. Given his past actions, which are well documented by the press and audits, while he was running the Connecticut Port Authority, I don't believe that he has the judgment or integrity to oversee our elections. I intend to demand that he be placed on paid leave pending the outcome of the federal investigation, pending the attorney general's investigation. Bates was formerly the chairman of the Connecticut Port Authority and was forced to resign by the governor after various scandals were uncovered at the quasi-public. Bates has also been named in a federal grand jury subpoena investigating the Port Authority and in other investigations being carried out by other state agencies. The Connecticut Department of Public Health has reported the first case of human West Nile virus in the state recently. Manisha Jutani, the commissioner of DPH, gave the details at a press conference. We've had our first case of West Nile in Connecticut uh, this week that we can report, and it is from a gentleman who's in the age group of 70 to 79 from New Haven County. He is recovering and has been discharged to a rehabilitation facility. And Jatani said one county in particular was seeing more positive mosquitoes than others. In Fairfield County, we're seeing more, but mosquitoes don't necessarily know boundaries. And they are going to stay relatively closer to home. But again, for our oldest age groups, if one thing COVID has taught us is that as we age, our immunity diminishes and our response to infections diminishes. So doing those mosquito prevention things that you can do to prevent from getting bites is probably the number one thing that we want to recommend. The Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station that runs the state's mosquito surveillance program says 23 towns in the state have now tested positive for West Nile, with Fairfield County, the current hotspot, closely followed by New Haven County. Deer Lake in Killingworth, a 300-acre green open space that was under threat from being sold and developed, has been saved. The non-profit Pathfinders have signed a contract with the owners, the Connecticut Yankee Council, part of Boy Scouts of America, for $4.75 million. Ted Langevin is the president of Pathfinders and says it's great news, but there's still work to be done. We've acquired the property, but it's not quite saved yet because we have a large amount of debt that we have to pay off before we can really truly get to our goal, which is to put a conservation easement on the property and protect it for all time from any kind of development. So that's going to be our next major push is to try to get that achieved. The sale of the property prompted an investigation by the Attorney General's office who requested a delay in the sale of Deer Lake to see whether the sale was even legal. But as environmental lawyer Keith Ainsworth explains, who was acting for a private citizen who brought the lawsuit to stop the sale, says he and everyone else involved never heard again from the AG's office. They could have made statements that would have been helpful. And I don't know why they just stayed quiet. If they really truly believed there were no issues, they should have said, 
we don't find any issues here. There's nothing untoward about this. But if they thought that there were, they should have said it. And I can't imagine that it has taken this long and they still haven't come to a determination. I mean, they have many lawyers on their staff and it's very easy to determine what the law says. You know, it only took me a few hours to research it. The Attorney General's office has since released a statement saying they did find during their review that one parcel of land required to be preserved as open space, but the office itself never otherwise intervened in the sale or negotiations of Deer Park other than its initial request to delay the sale until May of 2022. The closing for Deer Lake is scheduled for September 15th and anyone wishing to make a donation to help with future efforts at the park can find details at savedeerlake.com. And a Connecticut pharmacist has become the first pharmacist winner for the state in the inaugural Association of Immunization Managers Champion Awards. Greg McKenna is the chairman of the Nutmeg Pharmacy, a group of five independent pharmacies based in eastern Connecticut, and becomes one of 50 winners around the nation. McKenna received his award at a presentation ceremony in Higginham, where his flagship pharmacy is based, and said now is the time for the state to consider giving all pharmacies provider status so they can do more for their communities. Physicians, most of the time you see a patient once or twice a year. I see our clients eight times a month. Pharmacists need provider status not to be the doctor, not to be the diagnostician. That is not our realm. Our realm, though, is to help and provide and to identify problems ahead of time. McKenna, his staff and his pharmacies were nominated for the award by the Connecticut Department of Public Health in recognition of their work in vaccinating their local communities with COVID vaccine and also in helping coordinate the National Guard in the vaccination of hundreds of people in care and nursing homes across the state. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.